So you have a pastor coming, Lord willing, and I want to talk about pastors. Now, let me preface this by saying uh, life is hard no matter how you do it or what you do for a living. Um, but I want to talk specifically about the challenges of being a pastor. And I'm doing this, um, and Evan doesn't know I'm doing this, but I'm doing this to help you have a framework for understanding really what you've asked this man to come and do. And it's not to say it's uh, more significant in God's eyes than what you do or that you don't have challenges, but I'm trying to expose the unique challenges that you've just invited a man to come partake, we hope, for decades. And there's no better way to do that than to um, look at the last words we really have from Paul uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So I'll, I'll pray and then read that. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I pray that you would open your word to us, that we might know who you are, what you've done, and how we should live. Amen. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Domitia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books, and above all the parchments, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, the household of Anasiphorus, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, and so do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Tender vision of Paul. Sandy, um, being a pastor's wife, has pastor's wife's experience. I'm going to share one with you. Um, we, I met some folks at a coffee shop and ended up doing a wedding for them. I'll do weddings for probably done five or so, uh, 
for unbelievers and uh, opportunity to share the gospel. So, but Sandy and I meet with them. So I was, Sandy was going to meet them for the first time at the coffee shop. And uh, I introduced them and then I went to get coffee. And the woman looks at Sandy and the first thing she said when I walked away was, wow, you are really attractive for a pastor's wife. So that was like 25 years ago. We've been arguing over which one of us was being insulted more. Because <laughs> I think it was me. She had known me for like some time. And I think it was, anyway. But, but the point is, people don't understand this job or these people. And I know it's hard to be understood whatever you do. But I want to talk about this reality. Evan is called to live and die in the borderlands between you and the God you love. That's what you're asking him to do. You're asking him to live and die in the borderlands between you and the God that you love. And I want to talk about that by looking at the minister's ministry, the minister's drama, and the minister's relationships. So let's take a look at the minister's ministry. The very first thing that we notice about it is that it's a Godward life. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by the appearing of his kingdom. He's placed Timothy, and so now, Lord willing, he's placing Evan right here to do this job, not just before you, but right before him. God has an intensive, organizational, vital, authoritative, covenantal interest in what happens in places like this. And he tells ministers to do that before him. God attends to whatever you do, wherever you do it, whatever your vocation is, or whatever your recreation is. But I will put it this way in sort of um, crash uh, crash commercial terms in order to make a point. God has a brand relationship with this job that he doesn't have with every other job. That's why when a minister makes a mess of things, there's ripple effects that extend far beyond anyone else's messes because God has assigned himself. We do these things. uh, I hope you do everything in the name of the Lord, your God, as if working for him, but we're more brazen and outward about it. I mean, we, we do this in his name before the face of God, according as Paul will say to the judgment of God and the consummation of God's purposes. Now that um, makes us uh, a lot of things, including arrogant. There is a certain pride that does this kind of job. I, if, if, I, if you would have asked me why I went to seminary, it was to serve God and his people. If, you, if I would have been honest and even had perception in my own heart of why I went to seminary, it was to become a big deal. I mean, that's just... A, I would never have said that. I could have even said that for probably 10 years. But I'm telling you, that was a big part of why I went to seminary. I saw Rodney Stortz, who who some of us know, one of us know. And I was back there. I was recruiting doctors. And I sat in the back of his church. And I said, how do I get that job? And somebody said, you go to seminary. There's one right down the street. And here I am. (laughs) Now, God sanctified that. But... It doesn't need to be that. It's not only that. It can be arrogant, but it doesn't need to be. It's not always. In some measure, it can be. Um, But it's simply different. 
it's a different kind of work that assigns itself prominence in a spiritual space um, that's, that's makes it distinct. And that's why its impact is potentially great positively or potentially great negatively. When I became a, I didn't grow up in a religious home when I told my parents that I was quitting my job and going to seminary, you know, right after I asked how to get Rodney's job. I didn't want his specific job at that church, but, but the, um, they said, so what are you gonna do? I said, well, I'm gonna become a preacher. And my family was like, what about a pastor? Why don't you become a counselor? Uh, somebody said, deacons are good. Shepherds are good. Have you thought about becoming a therapist? I, I was sure someone was gonna say shaman in a minute. <laughs> like anything but a pastor or a preacher. I was like, no, I'm gonna be a preacher. But I didn't, know, I didn't know what I was asking when I wanted to be a preacher. And Evan probably is learning now, knows certainly more than he did a couple, several years ago. But not only is it a Godward job, it's an isolating job because he goes on to say some things that we love in a way and we hate in another when we think about them. He says, preach the word of God, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And we're like, well, don't we live in an age when people don't endure sound teaching? Well, yes, we do. But here's a little, let me cue you into a little reality. Um, both the left ear and the right ear have their own kind of itches that they want. There, there is a, a liberal itch and a conservative itch. And the fact of the matter is, is that people have never liked being told what to think or how to feel or what to do, even maybe especially evangelicals. And if you didn't know it yet, I, I'm, I hate to break it to you, but you asked Evan to come rebuke and exhort and reprove. And you, you, he doesn't think that you came to ask him to do that with your neighbors. He thinks you ask him to do that with you. And you're itchy, I'm guessing there's more itchy right ears in this room than there are itchy left ears in this room. That's why when I hear a pastor who speaks so boldly to the culture, fine, I think we need to. The world is profoundly broken in our part of it. But they're always speaking boldly to a room full of people that agree with them which by the way is the, is the definition of not bold. But if you talk to the church about materialism, about gossip, about our own sexual lives, like us in this room and in my church, yeah, well then, then you're doing what you're asking. And that, I will tell you, is isolating. It is not fun. When you're young, you think it might be fun. It might be great to play the prophet. When you do it a few times, you realize that you stand in the foyer and you feel awkward and people feel awkward around you. Because we're not doing therapy or life coaching. Preaching is about telling you what to think and how to live and what to feel about reality. And raise your hand if you were just dying for me to come up here from Seattle to tell you what to think and how to feel and what to do. But also to correct you for not thinking properly, not acting properly, and having 
emotions that are incongruous with the reality of the kingdom of God. That's not why you asked me to come up here. I know you have faith. I know you're open to that. But, but understand that, that when Evan does this job that he does before God, that's why he does it before God. God just wants to remind us, hey, I know, I know that you love them. I know they love you. I know your kids hang out with their kids. I know you like to go on vacation with some of them and you're enjoying it at their house. And I know they pay you. I know all that. But, but Evan and Mike, I'm standing right here behind you, listening to this whole thing. And then you start to do that, so it's isolating, and that's why, that's why Paul tells us that it's also an embracing job. That's why he says, as for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He's saying, don't pull back, lean in. Can you see why he felt like he had to say that? He just said, God's watching you. God's, God's um, watching every video streamed in heaven of everything you ever said. And now I want you to shape these people to love them surely, tenderly, patiently, as he says here, but also clearly. And then he says, yeah, but don't pull back. Don't, don't get sheepish. Don't be timid. Don't pull punches. I want you to be sober-minded and I want you to engage the work of the church. Here's, um, here's a little pro tip, and I, Evan won't have this problem, I know it, because I know Evan, but, but you, can, you can, if you want to hide in a job, very few jobs can you hide in as well as ministry. Because after the benediction, you're pretty much on your own, or you can be. This is a, pardon the expression, but this is a, per, a performative work in many ways. That's why Paul's telling him, no, no, no. I want you to be sober-minded. I want you to think clearly about what you're doing. I know it will hurt. I want you to endure the pain. I want you to do the work of evangelists. In other words, get out of your ghetto and be who you are and do your job. That's the Greek. Phil can't help you with this because he knows Hebrew really well. But the Greek is, do your job. You've got to be self-regulated. So what are we learning so far? We've learned a little bit about ministry. It's before God. It's, it's isolating. It requires you to lean into your whole life. It's very hard. Are you, are you familiar with those, uh, remember those famous words from Jeremiah to God? You deceived me and I was deceived. Well, actually, you look up at that passage, and he is very specifically talking about his call to ministry. That's what he's talking about. I've prayed that prayer. Not the way it's supposed to be. And there's a certain, because there's a certain kind of, of intensity to, to ministers, a certain, you know, there's a certain drama to us. I mean, think about, what Evan's going to come up here and do, right? He's going to come up here and he's going to do all this stuff, sacramental stuff, preaching stuff, pastoral stuff. He's going to do it like it has eternal significance, that there's nothing else more important in all the world than these cups and these squares of bread. 
I'm telling you, that's a weird thing to do. I, I, I think it's true. I, I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm saying that, that there is a certain intensity of focus to the minister's life and the way he gives it. For I'm ready, being poured out, Paul says, as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now in Paul, this time is very acute and very real and not meta metaphoric. He knows that his end is near and that's why he's writing these words. But listen to what he starts to say. Um, there's a lot of first person here and I want you to see that. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness for which the Lord the righteous Lord will judge me on that great day. The reason I want you to see all the first person pronouns is that this job is very, very personal. I'm sure there's other jobs like this. I can't really think of other jobs that fuse your community, your soul, and your paycheck into one thing like this. And that's why Paul, this very Christ-centered apostle who dies to himself and all these things, at the end of his life, he's saying, no, I did it. I, I kept the faith. I fought the fight. I'm going to, I love this. Paul, at the end of his life, is like, it's going to pay off. It's like, I'm going to get a reward. I love the personalization of of his entire eschatology. It's like, yes, I'm getting a crown. It's going to be awesome. And everything I did is worth it. Because Paul's life, when he says the life I live, I now live for the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. He's saying this. He's saying, I'm, I'm giving. He can pour it out wherever he wants. There's something very intensely personal about this job because it touches everything about us. How we feed our family, where we live, what our, our foundational primary community is, and our faith life as well. And that's what Paul's saying. He's being, and what do we do with that? Paul doesn't say, I wish Paul said, I'm pouring out my life. Is that what he says? No. It's in the passive voice. He says, my life is being poured out. I do not have control of my life. My life was, was given over to this job, to this world, to this ministry. And now God's doing what he wants in my life. This thing can be the most beautiful, exciting, transformative ministry in um, Mount Vernon. Or it, it can be a train wreck. Or more likely, it will just be that thing that's in the middle that won't really define itself either direction. And that's up to somebody other than Evan, even though Evan's called to work hard, and it's up to somebody other than you, even though you're called to work hard and build the church as well. But for Evan, it's really personal. Put it, put it this way, it's an image I like to share with congregations. Everyone in this room, for the most part, we have a three-legged stool, especially during your work life. And your three-legged stool is uh, family, your work and vocation, how you provide for yourself, and then this, this community and your relationship with God is the third leg of your, of your stool. 
So those things, you have a, more, a relatively stable tripod of things upon which to rest. And if one of them, one of them becomes weakened, your vocation becomes weakened, or you have to change jobs, or your family gets disrupted, or your church doesn't have a pastor for like 30 years. How long have you guys been on the pastor? Probably not that long, but, but it feels that long to Eric. The, um, you know, you can balance on the other two, but as of his moment of installation, Evan and his family will have a one-legged stool because his family becomes fused to the church like no one else's does. His vocation is at the church and his spirituality is in the church. You know, understand this, if a pastor loses his job, and this doesn't mean pastors should never lose their job, by the way, I'm not saying that. But if a pastor loses his job, he almost always has to move, his kids have to leave their school, and their children lose their friends. It's a very, very personal drama, having poured himself into this. It's his whole life. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, and as I've said a moment ago. Paul knows that there's a reward for that, and beautifully, he says, it's not just for minister types. It's like this, there, there isn't like an apostle's award and a pastor's award and an elder's award. But, but what he's saying is, I'm just openly declaring that everyone who loves his coming will live for it. This is how God told me to live for it. And, and Evan is going to live it, and his family too, on a one-legged stool. So that doesn't mean, like, make Evan do his job, right? And, and if Evan's not doing his job, someone lovingly tell him. I'm not saying just cut us all kinds of slack. I'm saying understand what this life is like. He does it before God, and he's got to tell you hard things, and then he's got to relate to you. And that's what I want to talk about now. I want to talk about the minister's relationships, which are, in a word, complicated. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Lamatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Wow, there is just a lot right there, and we're just a few verses into the relationship part. First of all, you can see that Paul, um, Paul is feeling lonely. Paul is lonely. Now that's interesting because we don't think of Paul as super like emotionally in touch with himself, you know? I don't know what his emotional his EQ is, but it's a lot greater than we give him credit for. And he's at the end of his life and he wants his, he wants his son in the faith to be there. Why do you suppose that is? Well, probably because it's hard to think about getting your head cut off. But it's also complicated because he wants Timothy there and Crescens there and Titus there, but also he knows he doesn't have Demas there because Demas just blew him off and ghosted him because he fell in love with the world. So he, he, he longs for friends, he laments for others. Uh, I love what he says about Alexander the, the coppersmith because he's just so open about Alexander's opposition. And like he names the guy. Now think about that. This is like a letter. He's naming the trouble causers. And this is the, this is the world 
He does give thanks for that he lives in. Relationally, he gives thanks for Luke. And then in this beautiful phrase, it's clearly John Mark, who he had enough of after his first ministry. He's like, I have this vision of Paul. I guess I'll write about Mark and like let the world forever know that I was kind of a little bit maybe sort of wrong about him. He rolls his eyes and then he does his writing. Paul's life was was complicated um, and all these relationships are complicated because of that one-legged stool. You know, you can be dear friends with the Langleys. He will always be your pastor. If it ever comes, push comes to shove. He will stop being your buddy and he will be your pastor if he's living before God. Because not only are they complicated, they're, they're a hybrid. Like even in the midst of all this, yeah, you know, no one's left me. No one was with me in my first trial. And I'll, I, please come. And this guy left the faith. And even in the midst of that, Paul, at the end of his life, his relationships are all intertwined with ministry. I need him. I need him to come help me with ministry. You know, Luke is still here, probably polishing up the book of Acts. Paul's still doing ministry all his life because that's how his life is integrated. We learned some wonderful things about this hybrid life of Paul and relationships and ministry. Um, The first thing that I love about Paul is he's like ready to die, but he still wants to read. He still wants to learn. Hey, bring my books. Bring my books. I know I'm going to die, but I'm not going to spend the whole time praying. I'm going to I'm going to figure out what this whole thing about neo-Calvinism is. That's probably not what he thought about, but because that would be like 16, 18, 1900 years later, I guess. But, but, um, but he's still curious, and he, that means he still wants to live, learn, and teach. Also, what I love about Paul, and this is great for Northwest, every Northwesterner has one of these. We all have our favorite jacket, don't we? And Paul wants his favorite jacket. It's called a cloak. So I can bring that cloak that I love from North Face. The one, you know? And, and so Paul, and the reason we have these glimpses of him, I think, is so we can see how personal and intimate these relationships are and how they're all enmeshed with, with ministry. They're painful, too, and, and Paul's very open about his pain. Uh, Alexander clearly hurt him and angered him because he opposed his message, and so he names him and warns him. And also, listen to this, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. That's not a flyover verse. That's an apostle saying that he was deeply wounded after all he gave to all these people, that no one was there in his first defense, and he had to stand in the room and speak for himself and Christ alone. But unlike Alexander, who was really an opponent, Paul remembered what Christ had done for him and said, may it not be charged against them. So anybody who reads that letter, hears that letter, Timothy shares that letter, forwards it accidentally, hits reply all, they'll know, they'll know that they hurt Paul and Paul loves them. Which is, of course, how how life and, and ministry works. So one other thing about all these relationships with Paul, and then we'll, then we'll close it out. 
that, that like his ministry um, and his drama and his relationships that you're asking Evan to live in, uh, it's all aimed at this reward that he's mentioned before. It's all eschatological. Paul's leading this life in view of what the world will ultimately be. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom, to him be glory forever. Here he says, Paul's going to rescue me. He's also said that he's about to die. He has been rescued from persecution innumerable times. He's been in jail before, more than once. He knows somehow this is different, but he also knows that God will rescue him even in his final hour. And he wants the people in his world to know that. They can leave him alone. Alexander can oppose him. They can come quickly. But just know this, and this is what you really want from your pastor. Just know this, that your pastor, no matter how difficult it gets, knows that great summary of the gospel that's not in the Bible, but true nonetheless. Because of Jesus, it's all going to be okay. And that's where Paul lands with his friends and his ministry and his drama. I'm convinced he knows his life is soon going to be over. But he wants everyone to know. And that's what Evan will tell you every Sunday, even when he's admonishing and rebuking you. Okay? He's going to be telling you what Paul says here. You're going to be okay. God's going to rescue you. You have cancer. You don't have a job. Your marriage is fractured. Your children are wandering. God will rescue you. God will rescue me. It's going to be okay. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I ask that you would um, certainly help me to do this as a minister of your word and also Evan and this congregation. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would um, establish your ministry here for generations to come. In Jesus' name, amen.